Our text this morning is the New Testament reading from the book of Romans. Now, it may not be immediately obvious as to why, but this is actually a standard Trinity Sunday reading. So it's appropriate to look at it here when we're in the middle of a series on the Trinity. The last two weeks, we've seen the, tr the Trinitarian shape of our salvation. And here, we're sort of still on that theme, but here we want to look at the Trinity and the Christian life. Where we want to connect some dots between the triune God and the shape of Christian living. And so, the big point here is simple. And it's this, right? It's that the reality of God as triune is basic, and it's essential to Christian existence. In fact, it's decisive to Christian existence. It's the mold or shape of Christian existence, and it's essential to Christian destiny. Right By now, I think we, we know this, right? The Trinity is not an afterthought or some abstraction. It is the very ground and the very grammar of Christian existence, and that's what we want to look at this morning through this passage in Romans and we'll make three points. They're there on your outline. Liberty, sonship, inheritance. Okay, so first, liberty. The Apostle Paul begins by saying we are debtors. That is, we have an obligation not to the flesh, he says, to live according to the flesh. So Paul uses flesh in a somewhat unique way. It, it doesn't mean simply the body. Scripture does not view the body as evil. Right? Flesh means the order of things. The whole human order of things, which is now bent and turned away from God. Which naturally now sort of resists God. So here, when Paul says flesh, he's referring to the human person as fallen as belonging to this fallen order of things, belonging to this age. We usually get about half of this right. Like, when we think flesh versus spirit, we think moral warfare. We get that, right? F flesh is the bad part. Spirit is the good part. But there is a, an, an age, an aeonic, having to do with ages, connotation to this word in Paul. Flesh belongs to this present evil age. Spirit is the power of the age to come. What is born of flesh is flesh, Jesus says in John's gospel. What is born of the spirit is spirit. So Paul says we owe the flesh. And by the way, the flesh can, can not always be explicitly sinful. It just might be your credentials, your upbringing. We owe the flesh, he says in verse 13, nothing. Because if we live according to the flesh, we will die. And so the implication is that we're debtors to the Spirit. We have an obligation, a debt, to live and walk in the Spirit. For the Spirit is the power of the age to come. So if you look at the text in the second half of verse 13, the contrast here to living according to the flesh is stated this way. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, that's militant language. 
Every Christian is locked into mortal combat. Either sin, and Paul sees sin as a malignant, monstrous power which seeks to enslave. Not merely simply a violation of a rule. Either sin will triumph, or God in Christ through the Spirit shall liberate you. There's no third option here. And this liberation as I've already just phrased it, is Trinitarian liberation. And this situation in which we all find ourselves in, right? there's no placing this combat on hold. There's no leave. There's no resigning from it. There's no days off from it. There's no being discharged from it. There's no stalemates. There's no draws. And thus the Christian life is, as Calvin puts it, a thousand daily crucifixions. Or in John Owen's words, it is either kill sin or be killed by sin. Like if you think you can manage sin and corral it and put a little fence around it and keep it in this little part of your soul, we are deeply deluded. If you, by the Spirit, put to death, Notice, this is something we actively do. We actively do this. But while we're active, it's not a mere human achievement. Notice, again, the text. If by the Spirit you put to death, you execute. Right? Here, everybody's for the death penalty. You execute. You are the executioner of sin in your own life by the Spirit. The Spirit then, we may not think of it this way, the Holy Spirit is the instrument for killing, for slaughtering sin in our lives. It's a kind of power that overcomes the powers and fastens sin to the gallows where Christ hung in our place. Now, Paul's assuming something here, which he covers elsewhere, right? And it's a crucial assumption. Namely, that Christ has destroyed sin. He has done what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Christ has destroyed sin, this power, in his cross and resurrection, and that you have been united to him. United to him in his death, united with him in his resurrection, Through baptism. What is he puts it in very similar language in Colossians when he says, You have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ, the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the flesh. Or in Galatians, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, notice that past tense, have crucified the flesh and its passions. This has in one decisive way already happened for you. So what you're called to in this text is not an additional work, right? It's an appropriation of what God and Christ has already done on our behalf. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have already crucified the flesh and its passions. 
So the Christian life is not, Jesus did something great for you. Now try to be disciplined and live accordingly. It often takes on those hues, right? right? This initial grace has been given to you. Now you better be obedient. What it is, what the Christian life is, is our lives being drawn into the mystery, right? The dark, dreadful, terrible, luminous, glorious mystery of Christ's cross, his death, and his resurrection. And that's why we can be happy warriors in the midst of this fierce battle. Right? Because Christ has already won it for you. But it is a battle. Sometimes you come to church, I bet. I was talking to somebody, I can't remember who it was about this recently. And you, th- you, may th- you might have this thought. Is the Christian life the same anguish struggle for all of these smiling people as it is for me? You ever have that thought? Am I like the only one for whom this is traumatic and turbulent and a collection of failures? Because church culture tends to create, you know, smiley people who are moral and decent and clean living and civically delightful and all the rest, right? Like our children in the nursery, right? That's what you get. But then you, then you go, you look at Paul, and he's like, this is a tumultuous chaotic warfare where you're dealing with these deep and quasi-demonic forces that are entrenched in your nature. So, if you ignore this battle, you might be happy, but you won't be a warrior. (laughs) And if we don't fight this battle on the ground Christ has already conquered, you may be a warrior, but you won't be happy. So, Christian existence then for us is continual mortification, meaning putting to death, and continual, this is the the light half, the, the side of glory, continual vivification or quickening, being made alive with the risen Christ. And that death and resurrection and your union with Jesus Christ in it That is the secret mysterious power, right? The divine provision, the key to victory in the Christian life, progress in the Christian life. Because you know why Paul talks like this and scripture addresses us this way? Because what we are up against in life, what we are up against in our disordered souls will not yield to anything but heavenly supernatural, eschatological power. It is impervious to our best efforts and our resolution and our grit and our discipline. To think it is somehow manageable by those things is to completely miscalculate the nature of who we are and what we are up against. It is only because, as Paul puts it in Colossians, you have died and been raised with Christ and seated with him at the right hand of God, it's only because of that place is the vantage point of Christian existence that Paul can then go on to say to those same Colossians, therefore, put to death the deeds that are on earth. What is earthly in you? So, practically, I think it looks something like this. We are to take our sinful tendencies our temptations, 
and self-consciously laying hold of the Spirit, we are to count ourselves, to reckon ourselves, to think of ourselves, maybe sometimes in the teeth of the evidence, as dead to sin. We are to say to sin, I put you to death, not as an act of sheer will, but in the death that I died to you in Christ's death. And then by the Spirit, in what I would call holy ruthlessness, we direct sin to the place where it has already been put to death, namely to the cross of Christ. We never leave the foot of the cross in the Christian life. And as you do that, Paul says, you will live. That mean, He means you will mysteriously part. He doesn't mean you'll clean your act up. He means you will mysteriously partake of the resurrection life of Christ. You will be made alive, even as he was, to God the Father. So, now let me give an extended paraphrase of verse 13. It reads something like this. If, by the Spirit, you put to death, you unite to the cross of Christ, the deeds of the body... You shall, through the resurrection of Christ, live, even as he did, to God the Father. This, beloved, is the Trinitarian form of Christian liberty and victory. It's not just like God does something, right? The persons do specific things. Things are appropriated to the three persons. The Spirit unites you to the Son, crucified and raised. And in the Son, by the Spirit, we present ourselves to God the Father. Your liberty, your freedom in Jesus Christ is all the way down, Trinitarian in shape. So that's liberty. The second point profoundly related to it is sonship. Verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons or the children of God. It's a simple, simple verse, but it's a crucial text, I think, in clearing up a lot of modern confusion. What does it mean? You often will hear, right, someone will say something about being led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit here is not to have some mystical sense of the Spirit telling you what to do. It has little to do with the way many speak about the Spirit leading them. In context here, it means to be using the life and power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Right? So where you see a Christian struggling by grace to walk in holiness, there you have a Christian led, directed by the Spirit of God. And thus you have a son or a daughter, a child of God. All of God's children, then, are thus led by the Spirit. Or to put it differently, there are no non-Spirit-led Christians. But I cut my teeth in a movement, the charismatic movement, when I was very young, where there were kind of like two tiers of Christians. Ordinary Christians and Spirit-filled Christians. Right? Regular Christians and tongue-speaking Christians. Paul will have none of that. What it means to be led by the Spirit is to be putting sin to death, not hearing voices. So this being a child of God, this sonship is further elucidated in verse 15. 
which says the spirit which we've received is not a spirit of slavery, not a spirit of fear, right? Rather, it's the spirit of adoption. So the Holy Spirit is the one who the text says brings about your adoption to sonship. And this language is very rich. It's the language of full legal rights of a male heir. All Christians have that. Through the Spirit uniting you to the Son, you become a son or a child of God. J.I. Packer said, right, what a person makes of their adoption, of their sonship, of their ability to call God Father, is a barometer or an indicator of the health of their souls. We obtain by the Spirit uniting us to Christ all the rights and privileges of the children in God's household. I mean, that's an astonishing thing, right? John, in his, the prologue to his gospel, says he came to his own. His own did not receive him. But to as many as have received him, to them he gave the right, the authority to become the children of God. So you can see the Trinitarian beauty and the shape, the Trinitarian shape of this at the very basic level of being a child of God. The Spirit unites us to Christ the Son, and we too become sons, children of the Father. Right? The grammar of just being Christian, a child of God, is Trinitarian. Now, I'm going to guess that it's been a long time since a testimony or a conversion story was actually told with this shape. Or this texture. Right? Again, God in general will do for most of how we speak. In fact, a purely human Jesus would do for most of how we speak. Even how we speak about our conversions. But Paul is thinking here in such a way that the Trinity just sort of like falls out of his sleeves. He's not doesn't even have to even be that conscious about it. He's not thinking, oh, I've got a passage on the Trinity here. He's thinking, I'm talking about Christian existence, and here's what it looks like. So whether we see it or we understand it or we can articulate it or not, this is the glorious reality. You are embraced in the life, and it's an orderly life, right? You are embraced in the orderly, three-personed life of God. Every moment of your Christian existence The Spirit then not only unites us to Jesus' death and resurrection, that was my first point, right? But he brings you in and through Jesus unto the Father. You see that in the latter half of verse 15. It says that as adopted sons through the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word used by children to address their fathers. And remarkably, it's used by Jesus in Mark's gospel. Do you know where he uses it? In Gethsemane, when he's praying there. He he uses it to address his father, the God of Israel. Now, the word Abba doesn't mean daddy, as commonly asserted. It's just the Aramaic word for father. And the adult Jews of Jesus' day would have used it of their parents. The problem with translating it as daddy is that's just too casual. 
and it could border on presumption or irreverence. God is our Father, but he's our transcendent Father in heaven. Right? Nevertheless, nevertheless, there is a warmth and an intimacy in the address, in the address as Jesus used this address. And the even more wonderful thing is that his people are, by the Spirit, to have the same cry upon their lips. I mean, think of that. This is Christian adoption, to address the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with this intimate word, Abba, Father. Luther has a wonderful comment on this. He says this. He says, this is a little word, yet it comprehends all things. The mouth speaks not, but the affection of the heart speaks after this manner. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from thy presence, yet I am thy child, and thou art my father for Christ's sake. Wherefore, this little word, Father, conceived effectually in the heart, passes all the eloquence of Demosthenes, Cicero, and the most eloquent rhetoricians that ever were in the world. It's the most eloquent thing you can ever utter. Abba, Father. This is the heart. And what I want you to see today, especially, is it's a deeply, fully Trinitarian heart of the Christian life. To, by the Spirit, in union with Jesus the Son, call Jesus' Father your Father. And the result, in verse 16, is that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Finally, then, thirdly, inheritance. Sonship, liberty, inheritance. Salvation is, as we know, already and not yet. It's a present reality. It has a future consummation. Right? Paul will say just a little bit later in this chapter that we're waiting for our adoption as sons. Isn't that quite remarkable? He just goes through this whole thing about how you're adopted, and you can call God Father, and you can put the word Abba on your list, and ten verses later he says, we're waiting for our adoption. So he never loses sight of this. We're waiting for our adoption, he says, the redemption of our bodies. So the fullness of adoption is at the resurrection. So to taste the life and light of the Holy Trinity as a child of God is to yearn. It's to groan. It's to wait eagerly for the end. It's to desire the full inheritance. You get a a glimpse of this logic in verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs of Christ. We shall come into full possession of all that God has for his children because we are children. And children inherit. And it is primarily God himself. In a renewed cosmos, to be sure, Who is our inheritance? If you read the last two chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, they will display the eternal state as one where the central feature is glorious face-to-face communion with this triune God in the city of God. And in that, you see the fulfillment of the yearning of the psalmist. 
who says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, there is none upon the earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion. That's inheritance language right there. The land was Israel's portion, right? Israel's inheritance, God is our portion. My portion forevermore. And how this occurs is seen in the phrase, fellow heirs with Christ. You are sons in the Son, and thus you are joint heirs with the one who inherits all things. All that the glorified and exalted Jesus now possesses in heaven, and all that shall come to him, is in him your sure and certain inheritance. But notice this. The Spirit, which makes us sons or children, is also called elsewhere a down payment or a pledge or an earnest of this inheritance. Right? Crying, Abba, Father, now. The communion we have now is a foretaste of the communion we shall have in the new creation, in the age to come. So even your inheritance, beloved, even your inheritance is fully Trinitarian. You are heirs by the Spirit, joint heirs with the Son, inheritors of all the wealth and riches the Father shall bestow upon his children. If indeed, as Paul goes on to say, we suffer with him so that we might be glorified with him. Heirs are called to mysteriously participate still in this age in the son's sufferings. And in the midst of those sufferings and afflictions, again, our afflictions are not seen by Paul as ours. They're seen as a participation in his afflictions. And in the midst of those, we cry out, Abba, Father. I mean, even our sufferings, let me put it this way, even our sufferings are Trinitarian sufferings. They are a conformity to his death that we might know the power of his resurrection in the spirit that we might live unto the Father. Right, to do, think, go back to, back to the beginning in closing here. Back to the beginning. To do what the text opened with in verse 13. To, by the spirit, put to death sin in our bodies is to confront our twisted natures, and that means suffering. It is to share in Christ's sufferings so that we might share his glory. We're not morbid about this. On the contrary, we are not morbid because the sufferings of this age are not worthy to be compared to that glory, Paul tells us. We, we agree with the apostle, right? The sufferings of this age are unworthy to be compared with the fullness, the splendor of our glorious inheritance. Because the glory to be revealed to us is, first of all, the glory of Trinitarian liberty. So I urge you, I urge you, by the Spirit, execute the deeds of the flesh that you might live. Don't negotiate with them. Don't bargain with them. Execute them. The glory awaiting you is Trinitarian glory. And secondly, it's the glory of Trinitarian sonship. The glory of Trinitarian liberty, the glory of Trinitarian sonship. So I exhort you to cry out, Abba, Father, in every state of life. For in Jesus you have access and you have intimacy with the Father. And this is to be the cry of our hearts. And the glory awaiting us is finally the glory of Trinitarian inheritance. 
And so I encourage you, do not let it drop from sight. We are still waiting for the fullness of our adoption. It is worth suffering for. It is the glory of the Trinity itself as your life and portion. This is your destiny as children of God, liberated children of God. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.